0: Listening to episode 64 of Reading Aloud. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of the show. It's a literary variety show of sorts. And my partner, who sits to my right, is Sam Kiefer. He's meeting the board and the coffee cup and the computer. Hello, Sam. Hi, Nate. Um, well, I should just get right into this, right? Dive in. Yeah, there's no reason for delay. Friends, uh, it is with a heavy heart that I am here to announce to you that... This will be the final episode of Reading Aloud. I know with our producing partners here at Earwolf and I want to begin by thanking them and and for them helping me produce this show and guide it through its its evolution, specifically Adam Sachs and Paul Shear. Uh they sort of helped me develop the original concept for the show, um, so they're they're kind of my foundation. Um, thank you guys. To be very honest, I think I'm really lucky to have gotten 64 episodes out of Earwolf because when it gets right down to it, <laughs> this show doesn't fit within the Earwolf universe. Yeah, the Earwolf brand um, was built on the backs of improvisers and, and comedians creating characters and, and comedy content that has been groundbreaking in the podcast universe. They've created an entire genre, really, and they've been enormously successful because of it. However, Reading Aloud isn't <laughs> a comedy podcast. It never was. Our pilot episode had a story about a father burying and mourning his dead son, uh... I spoke to Gloria Steinem about the unrelenting misogyny and sexism that continues to dominate our culture. I spoke to Sasha Pfeiffer of the Spotlight team at The Globe about Catholic priest abuse. So um, it was always a weird marriage. A marriage where the two partners loved each other, but really when it came down to it, we're not compatible. (laughs) So this will be my final episode with Earwolf. But the show will continue, I I promise you. Um August will be a break and a transition, but come the fall there will be a a brand spanking new show on a new network that i'm really excited about, and I 'll get to that announcement when it's uh appropriate and and really in the end, I think it'll be uh the it'll be the right place for the show and hopefully in turn we'll bring a you know a new group of listeners to join all of you um, who are listening now um in our, our mutual worship and love and uh, obsession and fascination with literature and books and writing and the written word and all that stuff. And Jonathan Franzen, specifically. The new show is called Franzen. It's just <laughs> me talking about cool mandates. John Boy, and I will go on. Sunset cruises, bird watching, et cetera. So that's the news. But in the meantime, I have a show to do, don't I? Yes, I do. Because you are here and you want to listen to good stories. I got three of them. You Ready? good the first is from my sweet friend rachel axler you know her as a writer on uh such hit shows as new girl and parks and rec uh how i met your mother bored to death the wet hot american summer series uh veep and many more we met while she was on staff at the daily show and i adored her then and i adore her now we bonded over our um mutual love of theater and she's an outstanding playwright as well she's a a gem of a lady and i admire her so much she's so goddamn smart i'm saying all this because she told me to shower her with praise before I, i read the piece uh so here it is this is rachel's essay which was in the new yorker it's entitled behold your newest silver screen sex goddess jane neighbor here it comes in america we want our women to be girls and our girls to be sex fairies, and for those sex fairies to live next door to us for some reason. This shark-tog-ist, is only one such radiant sex fairy star to watch. In fact, you should probably close your eyes when she's off-screen and sort of block out with your fingers the parts of the screen she's not on when she's in a scene with someone else. Unless you are a complete idiot, you already know this star's name. Jane Neighbor, Neighbor is 28 and 22 at once. She is a kind of gorgeous that can only be found in or very near rivers. She is blonde, but also blonde, depending on the spelling. She is tall when she is on a ladder and medium tall when she is halfway up the ladder. Her eyelashes spell glory. Her naked hands can open wet jars with just the strength of her slender fingers. She can be sexy and pointy in things that aren't even adjectives, like glossary, or aren't even words, like Hillebrien. Her voice sounds like a truck full of rain. As I said, she is from Portugaria, or maybe I didn't say that yet. Anyway, that's where she's from. To understand her, you must take a plane to where she is from, or read the Wikipedia page about it or learn Portugarian, or just speak decent English because she's fluent and actually doesn't even have much of an accent. Portugaria is America a few hours ago because of the time difference. Its people are a simple people, a throwback people, like Americans, but a few hours ago. In Portugaria, they watch Portugarian The Ellen DeGeneres Show, which is the exact same show as America's The Ellen DeGeneres Show. In Portugaria, every young, ambitious actress dreams of Hollywood and its mythic, faraway opportunities for stardom. And every other person just has that dream where all of his teeth fall out. Recently, I met Jane under a bridge near a defunct dentist's office on the lower north side of somewhere in Queens. It's a celebrity haunt, and that I think some famous people were maybe killed there. I don't remember what she was wearing, but I think it was hair. Something was on the front of her head, either glasses or a nose. I probably should have taken notes. She made noises with the lower part of her face, and I was mesmerized. By now, you know all about Neighbors' success. Summer blockbusters, winter barnbusters, suppertime blust blockers, even movies. I asked her what it was like to be the new face of Sheila in the remake of the mega-hit Sheila the Exorbitant and she shrugged her delicate bones into a croissant-like shape and laughed a tinkling laugh. Then she responded, but I wasn't listening. The thing is, everyone wants to author the story of Jane. The famous director, Alan Harkness, called her, in one word, a French horn. The less famous director, Alan Hankress, called her, in three words, a French horn. But is she... Really? Can we remove the girl from the nudity and the actress from the horn? At least for long enough to write about it? Back under the bridge, Jane was looking at me and I was looking at her. And we were both expectant. She that I would ask her another question and I that she would just kind of say something. The seconds passed laden with silence. Her very presence a lie. It is far smaller than it appears on a large movie screen. I asked what it was like to have her sexy parts mash up against famous actors' sexy parts. Her answer was both short and long, in turn. A sigh and a string of syllables forming words that formed a sentence. I let it hang there, laden with fragility and malaise. I thought about my financial portfolio and what I had and hadn't eaten for dinner, and what a large man might look like in a short robe. I knew that years later I would remember this moment, so lush with silence, and yet so not full of speaking. Eventually she said, Oh, I think that's my Uber, and picked her way back across the sands of forgotten periodontics her blondness effulgent, and then evaporating into the night like the last pale crumbs of a Portuguese pastry. The only evidence of her ever having done this interview, a single lonesome note of a French horn. Rachel Axler wrote that. You can find her comedic musings uh, on The Human Experience on Twitter at Rachel Axler. R-A-C-H-E-L-A-X-L-E-R. Thanks, Rachel. You rule. Uh, Let's head on over to act two of our final episode here. But before we do uh, more people to thank Uh, Chris Bannon and Greta Cohn back at the New York offices. Um, Thank you guys for your support of the show and for helping me create the best possible version of reading aloud. Uh, Josh and Dana here in LA, the producers here uh, on the other side of this wall uh, for working their butts off all the time for this show and all the other earwolf shows and everyone here at the Earwolf offices for doing their best all the time to produce great podcasting content. And thank you, Midroll. And thanks to all my ad- advertising support, specifically Loot Crate. Um, okay, enough thank yous. Enough thank yous. Let's move on. Um, there'll be more later. Uh, on to Act 2. Here's an excerpt from the best book I read last year. It's by John Williams. Not that John Williams. And it's called Stoner which is a, just a tough name for a book. You hear that, and you're like, oh, God, this is just about some hippie dude who's stoned all the time. I'm not interested. It's about the exact opposite thing. It was pitched to me by a writer-director I worked with last year named Wayne Roberts. He wrote and directed this movie called Katie Says Goodbye, which will have its premiere um, at Toronto in the fall, and it's which is really exciting. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, Olivia Cook and Marie Steenburgen and you know it's it's a great cast in a heartbreaking movie anyway I worked in this film with Wayne and he said you have to read this book you have to read Stoner and the title pushed me away but it just happens to be like it's spectacular it, it, I think book people uh, know it and it's considered like this great American novel that like people don't really know about um It's about this guy named William Stoner who grows up on a farm in the Dust Bowl times in Missouri in the late 19th, like early 20th century. And he comes from farm people, like a very simple people. And he manages to find his way to the University of Missouri to study agriculture. And he is like the ultimate fish out of water. He's very shy and inward looking. He's a country person thrown into a very foreign world. But things begin to change for him while at college, and his life changes, and he makes this beautiful realization about himself, and he goes on to get his PhD and teach at the university and live this academic life. And, and I want to uh, read this really brief excerpt about the moment when he realizes what his life is going to be. So to set the scene, he's about to meet with his advisor, Professor Sloan, and Sloan is a real fucking hard-ass, like a real tough nut to crack, um... He's impossible to befriend. Think John Houseman in the paper chase. So he goes and he meets with him and, um, and the following happens. So, okay, here's me reading an excerpt from Stoner. Near the middle of his fourth year at the university, Archer Sloan stopped him one day after class and asked him to drop by his office for a chat. It was winter and a low, damp, Midwestern mist floated over the campus. Even at mid-morning, the thin branches of the dogwood trees glistened with hoar frost, and the black vines that trailed up the great columns before Jesse Hall were rimmed with iridescent crystals that winked against the grayness. Stoner's greatcoat was so shabby and worn that he had decided not to wear it to see Sloan even though the weather was freezing. He was shivering as he hurried up the walk and up the wide stone steps that led into Jesse Hall. After the cold, the heat inside the building was intense. The grayness outside trickled through the windows and glass doors on either side of the hall so that the yellow-tiled floors glowed brighter than the gray light upon them and the great oaken columns and the rubbed walls gleamed from their dark. Shuffling footsteps hissed upon the floors and a murmur of voices was muted by the great expanse of the hall. Dim figures moved slowly, mingling and parting, and the oppressive air gathered the smell of the oiled walls and the wet odor of woolen clothing. Stoner went up the smooth marble stairs to Archer Sloan's second-floor office. He knocked on the closed door, heard a voice, and went in. The office was long and narrow, lighted by a single window at the far end. Shelves crowded with books rose to the high ceiling. Near the window a desk was wedged, and before this desk... Half-turned and outlined darkly against the light sat Archer Sloan. "'Mr. Stoner,' Sloane said dryly, half-rising and indicating a leather-covered chair facing him. Stoner sat down. "'I have been looking through your records,' Sloan paused and lifted a folder from his desk, regarding it with detached irony. "'I hope you do not mind my inquisitiveness,' Stoner wet his lips and shifted on the chair. He tried to fold his large hands together so that they would be invisible. No, sir, he said in a husky voice. Sloan nodded. Good. I note that you began your course of studies here as an agriculture student and that sometime during your sophomore year you switched your program to literature. Is that correct? Yes, sir, Stoner said. Sloan leaned back in his chair and gazed up at the square of light that came in from the high, small window. He tapped his fingertips together and turned back to the young man who sat stiffly in front of him. The official purpose of this conference is to inform you that you will have to make a formal change of study program declaring your intention to abandon your initial course of study and declare your final one. It's a matter of five minutes or so at the registrar's office. You will take care of that, won't you? Yes, sir, Stoner said. But as you may have guessed, that is not the reason I asked you to drop by. Do you mind if I inquire a little about your future plans? No, sir, Stoner said. He looked at his hands, which were twisted tightly together. Sloan touched the folder of papers that he had dropped on his desk. I gather that you were a bit older than the ordinary student when you first entered the university, nearly 20, I believe. Yes, sir, Stoner said. And at that time, your plans were to undertake the sequence offered by the School of Agriculture? Yes, sir. Sloan leaned back in his chair and regarded the high, dim ceiling. He asked abruptly, And what are your plans now? Stoner was silent. This was something he had not thought about, had not wanted to think about. He said at last with a touch of resentment, I don't know, I haven't given it much thought. Sloan said, Are you looking forward to the day when you emerge from these cloistered walls into what some call the world? Stoner grinned through his embarrassment. No, sir. Sloan tapped the fold of her papers on his desk. I am informed by these records that you come from a farming community. I take it that your parents are farm people? Stoner nodded. And do you intend to return to the farm after you receive your degree here? No, sir, Stoner said. And the decisiveness of his voice surprised him. He thought with some wonder of the decision he had suddenly made. Sloan nodded. I should imagine a serious student of literature might find his skills not precisely suited to the persuasion of the soil. I won't go back, Stoner said, as if Sloan had not spoken. I don't know what I'll do exactly. He looked at his hands and said to them, I can't quite realize that I'll be through so soon that I'll be leaving the university at the end of the year. Sloan said casually, There is, of course, no absolute need for you to leave. I take it that you have no independent means. Stoner shook his head. You have an excellent undergraduate record, except for your—he lifted his eyebrows and smiled— except for your sophomore survey of English literature. You have all A's in your English courses, nothing below a B elsewhere— If you could maintain yourself for a year or so beyond graduation, you could, I'm sure, successfully complete the work for your Master of Arts, after which you would probably be able to teach while you worked toward your doctorate. If that sort of thing would interest you at all. Stoner drew back. What do you mean? He asked and heard something like fear in his voice. Sloan leaned forward until his face was close. Stoner saw the lines on the thin face soften, and he heard the dry, mocking voice become gentle and unprotected. But don't you know, Mr. Stoner? Sloan asked. Don't you understand about yourself yet? You're going to be a teacher. Suddenly, Sloan seemed very distant, and the walls of the office were seated. Stoner felt himself suspended in the wide air, and he heard his voice ask, Are you sure? I'm sure, Sloan said softly. How can you tell? How can you be sure? It's love, Mr. Stoner, Sloan said cheerfully. You are in love. It's as simple as that. It was as simple as that. He was aware that he nodded to Sloan and said something inconsequential. Then he was walking out of the office. His lips were tingling and his fingertips were numb. He walked as if he were asleep yet he was intensely aware of his surroundings. He brushed against the polished wooden walls in the corridor, and he thought he could feel the warmth and age of the wood. He went slowly down the stairs and wondered at the veined cold marble that seemed to slip a little beneath his feet. In the halls, the voices of the students became distinct and individual out of the hushed murmur, and their faces were close and strange and familiar. He went out, up Jesse Hall into the morning and the grayness no longer seemed to oppress the campus. It let his eyes outward and upward into the sky where he looked as if toward a possibility for which he had no name. In the first week of June in the year 1914, William Stoner with 60 other young men and a few young ladies received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Missouri. Uh, a brief excerpt from one of the greatest novels I've ever read Uh, oh boy, I've ever read welcome to reading aloud (laughs) welcome I cannot recommend this book highly enough, go pick it up it's called Stoner and it's by John Williams it was published in the 60s I think, it just had like a 50th anniversary printing, it's so good Um, more thank yous? sure, can I thank all my guests please, thank you Thank you, Amy Mann, for starting us off so brilliantly. And thank you to each and every person who came on this show as a guest. Uh, Without you, the show would not exist. And, And I am forever grateful. And same goes for all my book clubbers. Thank you, sweet friends. Going on a podcast usually just means you're being interviewed or you're doing bits. Like it's so easy, there's no prep. Not my podcast. I required homework. Um, That's real dedication, folks. So thank you to all my sweet friends who read a fucking book to come on this podcast. That's a big ask, man. Yeah, that Stephen King one was like it was eight hundred pages. Hundred pages, and poor John Forrest was up until like seven in the yeah. morning the previous night. Thank you, John, for reading eleven twenty two sixty three. And maybe most importantly, can I thank all the writers who are generous enough to allow me to read their work? Oh man. I mean, that's the foundation of this fucking show. That's why we listen. It's because of the writers. So thank you. Thank you. And a huge thank you to McSweeney's for being such a champion of smart, funny people. McSweeney's is the fucking best. And you should go to their website every day. I do. Uh, Act three, the final act. Okay, this is it, Sammy. (laughs) This is it, man. Uh, So there are certain things that every writer should read. Um, one of them is Letters to a Young Poet, which is this collection of 10 letters that Raina Maria Rilke wrote to a young uh, student who was trying to decide on being a writer or a soldier. Uh, so he wrote to Rilke like asking for advice. This is uh, 1903 to 1908. And it's a roadmap for creative people on how best to do their art. And I want to read the first letter, which for me is my, is my favorite. It's about why we want to create why creative people need to express themselves, and how best to do it. It's simple, it's accessible, and it's beautiful. Here it is. Paris, February 17th, 1903. My dear sir, your letter only reached me a few days ago. I want to thank you for its great and kind confidence. I can hardly do more. I cannot go into the nature of your verses, for all critical intention is too far from me. With nothing can one approach a work of art so little as with critical words. They always come down to more or less happy misunderstandings. Things are not all so comprehensible and expressible as one would mostly have us believe. Most events are inexpressible taking place in a realm which no word has ever entered, and more inexpressible than all else are works of art, mysterious existences, the life of which, while ours passes away, endures. After these prefatory remarks, let me only tell you further that your verses have no individual style, although they do show quiet and hidden beginnings of something personal, I feel this most clearly in the last poem, My Soul. There, something of your own wants to come through to word and melody. And in the lovely poem, To Leopardi, there does perhaps grow up a sort of kinship with that great solitary man. Nevertheless, the poems are not yet anything on their own account, nothing independent. Even the last one and the one to Leopardi. Your kind letter which accompanied them does not fail to make clear to me various shortcomings which I felt in reading your verses without, however, being able specifically to name them. You ask whether your verses are good. You ask me. You have asked others before. You send them to magazines. You compare them with other poems. And you are disturbed when certain editors reject your efforts. Now... Since you have allowed me to advise you, I beg you to give up all that. You are looking outward, and that, above all, you should not do now. Nobody can counsel and help you. Nobody. There is only one single way. Go into yourself. Search for the reason that bids you right. Find out whether it is spreading out its roots in the deepest places of your heart. Acknowledge to yourself whether you would have to die if it were denied you to write. This above all, ask yourself in the stillest hour of your night, must I write? Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if this should be affirmative, If you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple, I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Your life, even to its most indifferent and slightest hour, must be a sign of this urge and a testimony to it. Then draw near to nature. Then try, like some first human being, to say what you see and experience and love and lose. Do not write love poems. Avoid at first those forms that are too facile and commonplace. They are the most difficult, for it takes a great, fully matured power to give something of your own where good and even excellent traditions come to mind in quantity. Therefore, save yourself for these general themes and seek those which your own everyday life offers you. Describe your sorrows and desires, passing thoughts, and the belief in some sort of beauty. Describe all these with loving, quiet, humble sincerity, and use to express yourself the things in your environment, the images from your dreams, and the objects of your memory. If your daily life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself. Tell yourself that you are not poet enough to call forth its riches. For to the creator, there is no poverty and no poor indifferent place. And even if you were in some prison, the walls of which let none of the sounds of the world come to your senses, would you not then still have your childhood? That precious kingly possession, that treasure house of memories? Turn your attention thither try to raise the submerged sensations of that ample past. Your personality will grow more firm. Your solitude will widen and will become a dusky dwelling past which the noise of others goes by far away. And if out of this turning inward, out of this absorption into your own world verses come, then it will not occur to you to ask anyone whether they are good verses Nor will you try to interest magazines in your poems, for you will see in them your fond natural possession, a fragment and a voice of your life. A work of art is good if it has sprung from necessity. In this nation of its origin lies the judgment of it. There is no other. Therefore, my dear sir, I know no advice for you save this to go into yourself and test the deeps in which your life takes rise. At its source, you will find the answer to the question whether you must create. Accept it just as it sounds without inquiring into it. Perhaps it will turn out that you are called to be an artist. Then take that destiny upon yourself and bear it. Its burden and its greatness without ever asking what recompense might come from outside. For the creator must be a world for himself and find everything in himself and in nature to whom he has attached himself. But perhaps after this descent into yourself and into your inner solitude, you'll have to give up becoming a poet. It is enough, as I have said, to feel that one could live without writing then one must not attempt it at all. But even then, this inward searching which I ask of you will not have been in vain. Your life will in any case find its own ways thence, and that they may be good, rich, and wide, I wish you more than I can say. What more shall I say to you? Everything seems to me to have its just emphasis. And after all, I do only want to advise you to keep growing quietly and seriously throughout your whole development. You cannot disturb it more rudely than by looking outward and expecting from outside replies to questions that only your inmost feeling in your most hushed hour can perhaps answer. It was a pleasure to me to find in your letter the name of Professor Horacek, I keep for that lovable and learned man a great veneration and a gratitude that endures through the years. Will you please tell him how I feel? It is very good of him still to think of me, and I know how to appreciate it. The verses which you kindly entrusted to me, I am returning at the same time, and I thank you once more for your great and sincere confidence of which I have tried through this honest answer given to the best of my knowledge to make myself a little worthier than, as a stranger, I really am. Yours faithfully and with all sympathy, Rainer Maria Rilke. Letter one from Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. Uh, Read the rest of them. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, Well, that about does it. I thank the interviewees, I thank the readers, and the book clubers, and the writers, and now I thank you for listening, for being a part of the book club, for engaging us, for giving us great feedback, for giving me recommendations for things to read on the show, for sharing a love of reading, and for showing up every week and listening. This show, at its very core, is just me wanting to share with other people stuff that I'm passionate about. So... Thanks for being on the other side of this creative handshake. Thank you, and thanks Earwolf, and thanks Midroll. It's it's only been a fun experience. And keep a lookout on Twitter, where I will be announcing the new home of the show uh, very soon. And perhaps most importantly, uh, thank you, Sam. Oh, I've had the best time, Nate. Thank you. You came on this, uh, you came on board, and like you changed the show. You became this invaluable part of the development of the show, and um, your passion for the show was infectious to me, and um, I'm just grateful. Every single thing except The Great Gatsby has been my pleasure. (laughs) Everything except for that book has truly been... No, but you didn't like um, (laughs) uh, 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 The Girls either, right? Not in the way I didn't like Great Gatsby. Shit, man. (laughs) It just made you feel... That's, yeah, that's all. It made it you feel that America I is tough. Don't like when things make me feel emotional. Well, neither do I, man. Mm-hmm. That's I also it. don't like change. Yeah. Like, oh, it's do you, have, well, do you have a hard time with change? I do. Same here. Even like this is something I really admire, but I will get really upset if a TV show I don't like ends. Because I don't <laughs> I just don't like when things change. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, Seeing you, people wave goodbye yeah. is real fucking hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's been a lot of that. Yeah. Um That's it, guys. I'll catch you on the flip side And in the meantime Here's, here's some um, I'm sending you off With some Big Star It's like One of my favorite bands And this is a great song Called It's called Take Care So you take care Okay Fucking love you Nate I fucking love you too Sam Care not to hurt yourself Beware the need for help You might need too much And people are such, take care